criminal behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. difficulties on our end, Tim. It's all right. It's a it's a occupational hazard these days. So <laughs> yeah, all of us. Um, thank you for joining us so late. I know it's a lot later for you than it is for us. About three hours, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I just kind of gave your intro while we were waiting. Um, okay. I let them know, you know, a little bit about your background and what you're going to be talking, um, and that I'm going to share some resources. Um, you know, if people really want to connect to behavior analysts in the criminal justice world. Um, so I'll be dropping those in the chat um, okay. once you get started. But um, I didn't dive too much into your background or anything. So I will let you take it from here unless unless you want me to start with anything else. I, I, so we'll just say two, I'm sorry, what's that? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say two housekeeping things really quick. If you could just make sure that your first and last name is on the screen for your name for attendance for your CEU. And then we will have two code words today that I'll give out. And then there will be a survey link at the end for you to be able to enter those. So we'll pause twice for those code words. And if you could just make sure that your first and last name is on the screen so I can make sure to count you for attendance. That'd be great. Okay. All right. Now it's you. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you know what, since uh, there may have already had a, uh, a brief introduction, I'll just go ahead and start sharing the screen. And uh, I'm Tim Templin. I'm a BCBA licensed behavior analyst. I'm also a doctoral candidate currently. And uh, I'm head of the, uh, the uh, special interest group for ABAI on uh, crime delinquency and forensic behavior analysis. And I'm going to get into all of that once I start my slides and uh, I see no reason to hesitate, but I guess we are going to have a, a question and answer format, uh, maybe a little bit of time at the end. And so let's see. Ah, see now we're working now just fine. At, at least uh, maybe I shouldn't speak too soon. You probably then can see I've got the slide up there, criminal, uh, uh, this is the application and dissemination of ABA to the civil and criminal justice systems that I'm presenting to you. And, and this is the Arizona Association for Behavior Analysis. And I won't dare try and pronounce it as A-Z-A-B-A. I'll just call it that. So, um, but uh, uh, yeah, I like your, uh, like your promotion there. So there's quite a few slides, quite a few things that I'm going to cover. It's okay. I got my running tie on and uh, I, I think, uh, it's, I hope it'll be concise enough. But as I said before, maybe there'll be a few chance for questions or at any time you want to contact me. Okay, so well, I've decided to call this criminal behaviorology and I'll try and give an explanation of that. And in this talk, there's some, there's some different parts. The Crime Delinquency Forensic Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group. Uh, with the ABAI, which I joined just a few years ago. I didn't know existed before that. My own podcast, Criminal Behaviorology, it's both a podcast and a field of study. I guess that term behaviorology, to some, it may be a little bit 
I wouldn't say controversial, but it's uh, it's gone beyond behavior analysis, like the study of behavior as a science in itself, but you might see it as synonymous. That's okay. Behavior analysis applied to the criminal and civil justice systems, which is the focus of our special interest group. I'm going to talk a little bit about domestic violence and the idea of operant conditioning as an explanation. Uh, competency to stand trial restoration. So you maybe already can see from that that the area is pretty broad and there's a lot more to it. There's there's many other avenues and I would say if anything surprised me in my whole journey on this, I started out as a master's degree student in forensic psychology uh, that I graduated in 2000. I went to work at a forensic psychiatric hospital in Indiana and I knew nothing about behavior analysis then, but uh, I went to a few conferences and I came to the realization that uh, a lot of our problems were environmental, that maybe we ought to be able to look there. So that's what started me on the journey where I ended up combining the two fields. And that's what I've devoted myself to is, is criminal behaviorology in these different aspects. So if there's anything that surprised me is that I thought that I was the only one that was interested in it, or just one of a few. And I found out how far from the truth that really was and how far from the truth it has been for quite a long time because there's a base of literature and work that goes way back, as far back as anything in behavior analysis. So our uh, special interest group, uh, we have a Facebook page. You can look it up, Forensic Behavior Analysis. It's to ensure that those in the criminal justice fields, they have access to appropriate evidence-based behavior analytic and therapeutic resources to reduce crime and delinquency. And uh, SIG members have worked in a lot of different areas, and uh, many uh, are what you would think of as, uh, I won't even say traditional, but maybe mainstream uh, but they have an interest. They may work with developmental disabilities. I do myself currently, uh, but they uh, have an interest and have worked in many different areas, uh, seeking out to help juve uh, juveniles, seeking out to, to help uh, in all kinds of areas that are related to our particular field. So this isn't this slide here isn't coming to come out real clear, but it's from a poster that I uh, presented in Denver, I think that's 2017, and it's uh, just a review from 1995 to 2017 in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis of articles, articles in uh, Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis about crime delin and delinquency. And you can see in 1995, I think it was, they had kind of a special uh, issue about society and improvements, and so it it helped up the numbers. The rest of the time, it's kind of scarce. And so I just define these as any article related to crime and delinquency, which include probation, parole, rehabilitation, crime prevention, uh, protection of children, uh, autistic children from uh, crime or anything like that uh, of harm. Any of these areas, I kept it pretty broad. But uh, it just isn't in Java. It wasn't really pursued not as much as I would like it to be. I found out that ABAI at one point had a, uh, did have a journal focusing on uh, 
crime and behavior analysis, and I've looked into seeing if that could be restarted or a, a new version of that brought up. I think, wouldn't you like to see a, a particular journal d devoted to this field? And I found out there's a lot of people working in it, and you may be able to get a lot of literature going uh, in our own journal. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but this is some of the articles, the kinds of things that you'll find and what I found in that review that I did in Denver in 2017, uh, Preventing Antisocial Behavior uh, in Schools, R G. Roy Mayer in 1995. Uh, they determined the security arrangements and the punitive measures are at best uh, temporary and not really a solution. I'll talk about the next one in a little more in depth, Eliminating the Battering of Women by Men, Some Considerations for Behavior Analysis, Prompt Delayed Contingency Procedure for Reducing Bathroom Graffiti, Even the Small Crimes, Count Two. That was the Assess the Use of Effectiveness of Signs Posted for the Reduction of Graffiti in Men's Restrooms Using a, a Multiple Baseline Across Settings Design. Uh, assessment of deviant arousal in adult male sex offenders with developmental disabilities. Some some big names were involved in that, and uh, that was in that was just it was in 2006. Effect an effectiveness trial of contingency management in a felony pre adjudication drug court. Uh, 2008. They used gift certificates for compliance at different time intervals. Results indicate such a program is best suited for the more incorrigible drug offenders. Teaching, this is crime prevention, teaching abduction prevention skills to children with autism. 2010, children with autism acquired abduction prevention skills that maintained up on follow-up assessments. Uh, the indications that the method is effective in, uh, in doing just what it's set out to do to uh, prevent abduction. So there's a lot of worry about eloping and, and dangers and things like that. And this is a this is a application to reduce danger in case the the child is uh, it, it's it is crime prevention in a very particular way. This I found from last year, uh, confessions selected by consequences and opera analysis of false confessions and interrogation techniques. One or both the members were uh, part of our special interest group. You might want to check this out because there is a problem actually of false confessions, and people have wondered where it came from, and this kind of looks at verbal operants and how this may come about through a behavior analytic explanation of why somebody might end up confessing to something they didn't do, and how the police are, uh, without realizing it, may be setting up contingencies that could bring that about. So these kinds of studies, I, I have got to say, they're usually on the periphery, and what I mean by that it, it kind of starts out studying something else, either uh, to help autism and developmental disabilities, to improve society. There's really not usually a direct focus on crime and behavior analysis. It's kind of gathered up uh, from these different areas. It intersects in a particular way. However, I'm convinced excuse me, there are enough of these important socially relevant areas of study to justify our particular field with an emphasis on the on the specialization oh and uh go just, ahead and give our oops, go ahead sorry i'm just gonna go ahead and give the first code word um really quick uh crime is the first code word all right crime. excellent i almost forgot about a couple of books here this is from 1987 
behavioral approaches to crime and delinquency. You, you read it, it's a little bit little bit dated, but it has a lot of information, a lot of history, and it covers so many areas, even more than, than what I'll give in this talk here. It's, a, it's really a great encyclopedia of sorts to have. From last year, uh, Behavioral Forensic Using Applied Behavior Analysis and Psychological Court Evaluations, Douglas Rubin. I've tried to get a hold of him. If you anyone out there has connections with him, uh, let me know because I'd like to interview him and pick his brain about a few things. Uh, a really good practical guide and uh, covers a lot of different areas, including uh, a section on uh, competency to stand trial, which I'll inspired me, and I'll talk about that after just after a little bit here. Okay, here's the podcast, Criminal Behaviorology. It focuses on uh, criminology and behavior analysis as an area of study. I covered numerous topics, which uh, I, I, when I look back on that, I've covered more episodes than I realized. The special interest group and the podcast cast have a combined mission of linking these two different areas, hopefully in a way that's uh, meaningful. I've really found the technology as of late has been uh, an incredible tool, and who knew that uh, the way things turned out in the last uh, 18 months or so, it's really been an explosion in the use of uh, streaming video and podcasts to reach a, la a large audience. So if there's anything good that's come out in, in the last few months, last year or so, I've really found that uh, the technology has been useful to reach a wide audience, and the people have become very familiar with, you know, we had a little trouble getting on Zoom, but everybody knows that now, and uh, I have my own podcast, I've, I've done interviews, and then, uh, uh, of course, I've got the other, area, other areas of um, social media that it's broadcast on, and everyone has become, a lot more people have become very familiar with these venues. So there it is. Uh, it's on Anchor. It's also an, on another site called Potomatic, a combination of uh, criminology and behavior analysis. And uh, they, they list, uh, you, uh, everyone can just search for it. Uh, it's easy enough to find the different links for it. And of course, everybody's got a YouTube channel, so so do I. And uh, you can see uh, there at the bottom, and plus uh, my whole big 11 subscribers on there, but there has been quite a bit of interest with people viewing it. I had Joe Cotilli there at the bottom, at the bottom left. He's talked about kind of the history of behavior analysis and use in corrections, treatment of schizophrenia. Just there uh, was where you see uh, in the green. It's a critical look at in cold blood. Uh, a writer had uh, put together, he'd edited a work called Critical Insights uh, regarding the In Cold Blood story. And if you weren't familiar with that, that is the uh, Clutter family murder that took place in uh, Kansas, 1959, 58, 59, I believe. And uh, the author Truman Capote wrote the book In Cold Blood, which was uh, became one of the best known of the true crime books. And the subject of that, uh, of that text that Nicholas... Trudell, the writer of Critical Insights in Cold Blood, it was about true crime as a work of literature because it's become so popular and so well known, and the many different aspects of that. A lot of great writers have come through, and it's a lot of issues about accuracy, and then has does drama get put into 
some of these works and, and our understanding of some of these cases, how it can be skewed. A lot of interesting areas there. Carola Dillenberger uh, had a work on um, victimology as viewed by a behavior analyst. And she's got quite a history of uh, uh, living in Ireland and uh, uh, treating victims and, and how the different aspects of behavior economics develop into both uh, the similarities between victims and perpetrators. Uh, I have, I've also put together a series of webinars, another one of which, by the way, I'll get to this in a minute, but another one of which is coming up soon, but it's Novel Uses of Applied Behavior Analysis. I had Joe Cotilli and Mike uh, Weinberg on there. that They covered different areas of just a lot of different things. We've covered uh, suicide prevention, Juvenile Justice, uh, OBM, you know, Office uh, uh, Organization Behavior Management, and how that may apply to many areas. We've got another one coming up next week, and uh, if you're interested, let me know. It's free. You, we have CEs available there as well for a nominal price, but if you don't need them, the link I can give out for free. It's, uh, it's I think it's great. It's part of this overall effort to... Uh, to get the word out of uh, behavior analysis for many different areas. Uh, among the other things on the podcast, one of the more popular ones was on uh, the use of uh, uh, behavior momentum in hostage negotiation. There was a study done on that of recording, listening to the recordings of hostage negotiations and to uh, analyze how the, you'd had the high probability requests, and then the low probability requests, and how it followed the same patterns as you would behavior momentum in anything else in a successful hostage negotiation. Had a, we had a good episode with uh, Bobby Newman, as he had written an article about the movie and the book, A Clockwork Orange. And that was, uh, if you know that story, it's kind of a almost a horror story dives just a little bit into behavior analysis and how that had become a public image of behavior analyst uh, analysis and the realities of something like that and where all that, also kind of a literature review work. I've covered episodes on, on piracy, on uh, religion, and we're going to have a lot more this year too. So uh, it's, a, uh, it's an ever-expanding topic that... Uh, goes into a lot of areas, and some of them are, are just a lot of fun, too. Um, I enjoy them. Behavior analysis applied. Commonly have the emphasis on autism and intellectual disabilities. The need for behavior analysis is uh, active in numerous areas of mental health care. Forensic mental health care in the United States is where I learned about it. And so that's led me for a couple different times, I've given a version of this talk. I started out uh, giving this in 2019 at the convention in Chicago. Domestic violence from a viewpoint, uh, behavior uh, analysis. So uh, this one I, can, I, I found quite interesting, but I also believe it is maybe an area where we could have a, how shall I put it, we can have an, an end, like we could uh, make a difference or maybe apply to the work about prevention of domestic violence. So uh, Myers, as I mentioned earlier, so he looked at the problem of domestic violence as one would other kinds of severe problem behavior. Bell and Noggle, 2005, examined what we might call the stay-leave decision of victims of domestic violence 
and the tendency for a victim to return to abusive environment and how this can be viewed through a behavior analytic lens. Next, uh, 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 Dr. Bonham and also author Stanley Kime and Corbin put together an article in 2008 to view domestic violence as operant behavior. Clinicians can effectively label domestic violence in each relationship and address the problem rather than attributing the phenomenon of domestic violence, rather than attributing it to nebulous or unclear or inappropriate tendencies or psychopathologies or typologies. She developed a program to analyze domestic violence cases, which uh, was called the BAT, the Battering Assessment Tool. And I interviewed her, um, well, maybe uh, I think like a couple years ago. She has a real good interview on, on the podcast. So for Myers, going back to Myers, 1995, three-term ABC, uh, the contingency, to make people do things, the three-term contingencies, as we already know. Escape and avoidance of abuse can control the victim's behavior and compliance in the relationship. The batterer may receive positive reinforcement in the form of uh, being controlling in the whole home environment, the convenience of the home life, and the public image. I would add the propensity to abuse may be reinforced by separating the victim from family and friends who could intervene on the violent relationship. And in addition, the batterer may not receive consequences uh, or the consequences are far from sufficient or too far from the uh, problematic behavior. In this particular issue, I, I think it, understandably, it, it uh, sparks a lot of emotion in people. I, I do sometimes get responses uh, on it. And I, I think that maybe some of these areas people feel that behavior analysts can't really affect because it, it's such a sensitive topic, which to me is understandable. But for Myers, uh, mentioned the importance of uh, models in society, uh, the low probability of detection in spite of the fact that battering is a crime, and then all the legal and cultural and economic factors that may assist the batterer or fail to provide consequences to domestic violence. So the categories of interventions that that we may see exist are uh, assistance for battered women, uh, legal and judicial interventions, intervention programs who for those who commit domestic violence, and the changing of community mores and norms over the years that may be helpful in, in uh, dealing with the problem. So our profession maybe has not given it uh, the study it requires, but it we can clearly see that it's socially relevant and perhaps we can view it as the, the most, one of the most common and long-standing violent crimes that can be seen as a learned behavior so it has social relevance. Now Myers admits that measurement may be a challenge so it's the, the things that happen behind closed doors. However, uh, he does mention the use of uh, various kinds of permanent product is one potential remedy, measuring the effects of the behavior on the environment. This kind of thing has been done in studying the behavior of vandalism, abused and neglected children, and other areas. Another means involves publicly accessible records like the police calls, the arrests, the charges, the convictions, and sentencing data, all as means to gather data. Verbal responses of subjective data may be useful in this particular examination. The uh, victim reports and reports in domestic violence shelters on the effectiveness of domestic violence prevention programs. 
and, and also uh, all these things, uh, many cities have a domestic violence task force that are gathering data as well. So this brings us to a common idea of uh, the stay-leave decision, staying or leaving in an abusive situation. And I've heard uh, that some therapists or social workers, uh, they'll say that it may be not uncommon for someone to go back two or three times, and it frustrates a lot of the people that try to help the victim's family and friends, and people can get a very... Um, uh, the frustration can lead people to have a very apathetic attitude or feel that they can't do anything about the problem. But the phenomenon of whether someone should stay or leave in a domestic violence situation could be viewed in the uh, lens of, of behavioral economics. And so that's what Bell and Noggle fo focused on following up on Meyer's work in 1995. So they're working on the stay-leave decision. It's a careful examination of the phenomenon that may assist future programs for domestic violence prevention. So here's a, this chart here gives the idea of the behavioral principle and then the example. So positive reinforcement. The victim receives praise and from friends and family um, for returning to the domestic violence situation. Negative reinforcement, an example is the victim escapes physical abuse by calling police and leaving home. Punishment, the victim uh, may be punished for leaving by encountering barriers to finding other living arrangements. And uh, I, uh, when I'd given this uh, talk before, I had some examples from women and children that had gone into domestic violence shelters, and they found some not very good experiences there, so that they you got to understand that there's, uh, there's punishing effects to leaving a punishing environment at times. And then extinction, the victim continues to be abused even after separating from the relationship and the response to leave is eventually extinguished. So there's some other examples there, the behavioral deficits. I think uh, critical there, delay discounting. Victim chooses immediate reinforcers associated with staying in current relationship and social support linked with reinforcers related to leaving the relationship as opposed to the delayed reinforcers. I would see delay discounting is often a kind of behavioral economics that leads people to bad decision making. So this was, uh, leads to Bon in 2008, the battering assessment tool of uh, Bonham, Stanley, Kime, and Corbin. Other factors not associated with uh, antisocial personality disorder may be important. So these typologies or diagnoses or psychopathologies uh, in their study did not turn out to be as significant as perhaps individual uh, contingencies in each case. The idea of a lack of responsibility, like the, the man that commits domestic uh, abuse is not taking responsibility or you know denies it completely, that was not found to be always the case. Uh, the lack of success in the treatment approaches uh, may be a result of inaccurate stereotypes of who the batterers are and what are the contingencies in place. It is possible that future successful treatments could focus on understanding the operant contingencies in each, each particular case of battering. So why is domestic violence suitable for research and crime and behavior analysis? Prevalence of the social problem means there's data to be gathered in every community and uh, different agencies throughout North America. The principles of behavior analysis lend themselves to addressing severe problem behaviors that are intermittently reinforced. Domestic violence could be classified as such a severe problem behavior. Well, okay, that's skipped right over that. Now this, you, this gives you an idea of how varied some of these topics are. 
But it's another area of importance to me, and uh, recently I've, I've started to work in my own doctoral program of a project to help in competency to stand trial. I'll explain a little bit about this in a bit, but I will say when I worked at the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital, a large number of our, of our patients were admitted for this very purpose. They were found uh, from various counties in Indiana. They were determined to be incompetent to stand trial and were then put into a hospital for restoration of competency. And that is really old-school medical model way of looking at a problem. The authorities had determined, okay, we cannot proceed with a trial because of oh, a mental disease or defect. So we put them in a hospital so they'll be treated. We're not always tr- treated because it's being treated as if it were a uh, standard diagnosis. From that perspective, that led them to come to a standard psychiatric hospital for treatment. So uh, in these kinds of cases, I began to see perhaps because we were working with people to essentially help educate them, and that was at least part of what the psychology department did, to educate people that were unaware of courtroom terms or their behavior their behavior was not conducive to defending themselves in court. So that I began to see this was a, a kind of a training procedure, and yet it was looked at purely in psychiatric terms. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't have a psychiatric component because people can be diagnosed with schizophrenia and other kinds of serious uh, conditions, but I definitely saw that uh, some kind of environmental change and a set of contingencies could be useful. So, uh, what is competency to stand trial? Competency to stand trial. A defendant may be evaluated at the request of the defense attorney or at the discretion of the judge for his or her ability to stand trial. It's actually probably in less than 5% of the total number of criminal cases when I've looked at the data. Uh, If found incompetent, which we call ICST, they proceed to a competency restoration service, which is quite often a psychiatric facility that varies by state. Uh, Okay, who's determined to be incompetent to stand trial? A defendant brought before the court may be determined incompetent if he or she cannot effectively participate in their own defense due to an impairment. Three main reasons why the defendants really must be competent is to keep the dignity of the criminal process, to keep the reliability of the criminal proceedings so you have an accurate outcome, and the autonomy and the decision-making of the defendant. In other words, it would be unfair to have a defendant go to court if due to some kind of impairment they really can't make decisions in their best interest. So they, in a hospital, of course, there's various methods of competency restoration. There's medications to treat symptoms. There's group or individual therapy. And uh, I worked in legal education, uh, otherwise known as competency restoration services. So we'll go over a lot of the courtroom terms, the procedures, kind of rote train them over and over again. The truth is we would often have a, you know, pretty good success at it, but there was seemed to be a, a classification of, there, there was kind of a, a lower 10 or 20% that really struggled with it. And unfortunately, it can be a real problem 
because uh, you can be found incompetent regardless of what the charge is, whether it's misdemeanor or felony. Uh, we had one guy that stole a blanket from a Salvation Army depot. He ended up staying in the hospital longer than he would have been in jail for something like that. I mean, you, But because he was never found competent, he kind of hung around. They had other kinds of very, very minor charges, but the end result was a long hospital stay. So uh, ABA can be assistance in a restoration of competency to stand trial. At least that's what I've been working on. I believe that can happen. So this is a sampling of, uh, well, this is actually the 21 courtroom terms that we would work on Perhaps the the patient or the defendant would be familiar with some of these terms, or they would call them other things. But they were uh, it's a lot of different terms that not everybody is fluent in. And certainly, if somebody that has an impairment or poor education, they may have a hard time communicating these ideas uh, to their own attorney, uh, or when they hear them from their attorney, they may not be able to work. They would they may not be able to work at a level of mastery that is required for competency. So, for example, number five, the court reporter, he may just know that as the the young lady that sits up there and types all the time. But uh, does he realize that she is taking a record of everything that's being said? So those 21 courtroom terms is kind of a listing of things that they probably should know. The asterisks are, uh, I'm going to get into this a little bit later, is they would be taught using the means of intraverbals but we'll get into that in here in just a little bit. Competency to trial uh, restoration. The, the idea of my study that I'm planning is to have a multiple baseline study. Uh, essentially, this would be across behaviors. The behaviors uh, are really uh, what I call these three elements, which would be uh, methods of tacting, uh, which, of course, is identification, methods of intraverbal, so they would be able to understand one concept and relate it to another even without the point-to-point -point correspondence. You could convey ideas to them. And then we'll have, uh, not another verbal operant, but we'll have matching exercises. And it will be, uh, this is to help generalization. So this is a rather dramatic image of a courtroom player. And uh, here's a card being presented to the participant presents an image of someone uh, that's part of the courtroom terms. Uh, as a tact exercise, you could have this card and ask the participant, what is the image you see here? And the image you see there, I hope you will say, is the judge. Here we have a tacting exercise. We have uh, the same card there. And then we have another one that's got multiple uh, courtroom players in there. So in addition to the judge there on the one on the right, we have someone with their hand up, uh, and then we have another guy in uniform with his uh, back to us. So you could use the same card uh, in tacting exercises, depending on the arrangement. You say, okay, who's all the way to the left? Who's uh, got the hat on? And they could identify who they are when you work with them in, in uh, training. You could also do a matching exercise. And let's just say, so you've got these, an array of three cards uh, on the top there, randomly assigned. As a matching exercise, we can ask which of the three cards matches this card to the right. And you notice it's not point-to-point -point correspondence. This is uh, using generalization. So let's say we put them out there and say, can you match 
which one of these matches the card on the bottom. So the participant will attempt to answer. If he or she is correct, we can move on. If the answer is incorrect, then a hierarchy of prompting will be used after shuffling the top three cards. So let's shuffle the cards. And then we can use positional prompting has uh, then moved the image of the judge closer to the matching card. And then you could also use gestural prompting. You could er do error correcting as needed. My uh, ambition, my hope is that some of the patients that may experience a very serious impairment, serious intellectual uh, uh, intellectual disability, some have had uh, you know, uh, organic uh, brain damage or other kinds of problems, strokes, what have you, that have really impaired their communication skills. And I hope that some kind of a program like this is put into effect, at the very least to, uh, to use discrete trial training uh, to be able to say we helped uh, alleviate what was the barrier, what could have been the barrier to competency. And if we uh, are successful with the program, we can go ahead and uh, we can go to the psychiatrist that will then evaluate them. They come into a hospital, they're there for 90 days, they get another evaluation for competency, and we can be part of the report that says, you know, they're able to identify the 21 courtroom terms, they have fluency in them, and they can show comprehension uh, with the intraverbal skills uh, and, the, and the matching and the tacting. And if they're still determined to be in, incompetent, then the psychiatrist can look at that and say, okay, where do we go from here? So we've added a piece to the puzzle. And I'll go back one on that. Another, uh, so we'll have uh, multiple baseline across behaviors. It's gonna, really going to be across uh, tacting, matching, and intraverbal. And then we're going to have probes once the intervention stage starts. So we'll have a, we'll have a baseline, we'll go through these, and then we'll have an intervention uh, part after the phase change line, uh, and in those we'll have probes. And uh, when I was speaking to my advisor, she liked the idea of uh, a generalization probe, uh, and we could use popular television programs like... Uh, and this is a little bit old, but uh, like the Perry Mason show or Law and Order, you know, we've seen that or the old show Matlock where we would have we could have a video segment and they would go through and say, they'll stop the watch a little bit of a video segment. And I'll stop it and say, OK, who spoke last? Or if it's a matching arrangement, you know, you say, OK, can you match who spoke less last to this card or, or who stood up and made that announcement, you know, and have a foreman of the jury be one of the cards, or can you tack this, or ask an intraverbal question, okay, if uh, the person is standing up there speaking, uh, and they're giving testimony, well, there they are then a witness if they're giving testimony. So uh, we can work with them on these concepts in a discrete, in a discrete uh, trial format. So it's at the beginning stages, but I have... Uh, been in contact with the state hospital that does the competency that I previously worked for, and they are interested because uh, they have they have recognized some of the same problems that I saw. That you would have some people come in if they've got the intellectual capacity, if their symptoms are reduced by uh, medication and and other kinds of therapeutic treatment, then they be they may successfully become competent. But there's always a few left behinds. 
and I want to make sure that every effort is put in place to uh, to help increase the chances of successful competency to stand trial. So this is yet another example of uh, crime and behavior analysis. It's really a, it can be very expansive, and then we get into a question of uh, you know how expansive does it get uh, in our particular field? And I've had people interested in. This is a, a unique area of uh, helping the police, essentially OBM, Organization Behavior Management, to assist the police. I know uh, someone that has a Facebook page dev uh, devoted solely for that, to help the police learn uh, symptoms of mental illness or impairment or the best ways to uh, cope with someone that may have uh, symptoms of autism that are difficult to communicate with. Um, that's, that's yet another area. So that, and I've, I've mentioned before, work with uh, juvenile delinquency uh, and the, the previous things we've mentioned. So probably some of you out there have some of your own areas uh, related to crime and behavior analysis, uh, child custody evaluations. Um, there'll be all sorts of things out there that would be related. I, I, I know people have been on the Facebook page They've expressed interest in uh, helping to solve crimes. And I'm not sure something like that isn't possible because you think about it and, uh, you know, the, the police are out there to try and find the person. They look at the clues, but sometimes they do things to get their suspect to respond. They'll put out a statement in the press or they'll arrange the environment in just such a way to say kind of lure or... Uh, uh, trap the criminal into coming into the environment they want them to be in. So there's all kinds of uh, areas out there. A anything that has to do with the area of behavior and crime, and the crime itself is a behavior, so I think it's uh, it matches perfectly for with what we're doing. We sometimes hear, have heard the phrase, uh, you may have heard this, that, you know, the behavior analysts have looked or they they worked with the low hanging fruit in other words it was you know the the populations that need us the most we've already encountered and anything beyond that is i suppose higher higher up on the tree but i don't think that's necessarily the case i think there's all kinds of things it's just the infrastructure and then the uh, the culture of particular industries have not adapted to our science so it'll just be up to us to uh, adapt ourselves and put ourselves into these different working environments, whether we'll be called behavior analysts or not, uh, we'll still be applying the science of behavior in a way that's productive. So they can call us whatever they want within reason, but we'll still be applying the science of behavior. And uh, it'll be a useful thing. I, I see us always as a behavior analyst as like a service industry uh, a helping industry to other areas we're always an assistance to something else and uh, whether it's going to be in a glamorous way or will really be well known or will help out as kind of a missing piece of the puzzle we still have influence and what's what's lacking is in most of these kinds of problems is looking at changes in the environment and how that can be helpful so, hey Tim, I'm gonna jump in with our last code word really quick. Yeah, okay. Emily, can I say it? Because I gave it to somebody who had to jump up. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I want it. I want to give it. Oh, it's gonna be competency. 
competency is the last code word for anyone that has to jump off. We will we were we had some technical difficulties, so we'll continue on because we were delayed in getting started. Okay. The Crime Delinquency and Forensic Behavior Analysts Analysis SIG with ABAI, uh, we provided written video and audio content to disseminate ABA and the specialization. We've got on the on the Criminal Behaviorology YouTube page, we've got a couple of meetings that we had some really good discussions on. Uh, a lot of it was uh, getting out into the getting out into the uh, workforce and how people can be influential. And one young woman was working with juvenile justice, and then they cut the funding for it. And uh, uh, and others had been working in other areas, and it's kind of a you know two steps forward, two steps backward kind of thing. We just keep at it. But there had been some success in entering the workforce. It's just that you're not. Probably, if you do, I'm happy for you, but you're probably not going to have a BCBA job. Please come work for us. Although there have been a couple things where they've hired behavior analysts in police departments or in court systems, so I can't rule that out. But otherwise, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a build it ourselves kind of mission we're having. Uh, of course, the podcast to reach a wide audience. I hope this meeting right here can be a podcast because I know a lot of people are interested in your organization and what we're working on. Uh, the, the one I had recently, uh, you might want to check this out. I interviewed uh, Jeanette Fennell and uh, also a, it was a uh, neuroscientist, Dr. David Diamond. They appeared on my most recent episode, uh, which I called Kids in Cars. And it focused on the phenomenon of what's called hot car deaths. And that is where parents have mistakenly left their children in the automobile and then have, say, gone to work or whatever, their infant children in the automobile. And tragically, some have been injured and some have died from uh, heat stroke or just the, the sum total of being held inside of a hot vehicle. Uh, and people ask the question, how could something like this have happened? And uh, the neuroscientist, his perspective was on the different aspects of how memory functions in the brain and you just get into these habits and they could see they could see patterns of uh, something had changed loss of sleep which people typically have if they have an infant child uh, a busy work schedule and then there was the environmental change of a few years ago when it's required that uh, infant children ride in the back seat of the vehicle. Okay, you follow me? They did that because of prevention of uh, deaths from airbag deployment. So the infants had to ride in the back seat of the vehicle. After that happened, there was a huge increase in these hot car deaths. So it was a mandatory environmental change, and then and then you had this result of some some 600 children have died that way in the, in the last two or three years, I believe it is. It's really, the numbers were really quite surprising. And there have been prosecutions uh, in these cases. And it's really varied quite a bit from state to state. Uh, there is the, uh, a hot car deaths, um, a hot car act has been proposed into Congress. And that is so vehicles will be changed so that they have an electronic device to signal the owner, like through their 
their keychain that a, a another person is still in the vehicle. They have this technology available as a reminder. And if you think about it, uh, if we get past uh, a lot of the kind of judgmental stuff about it, we have these reminders for your seat belt and uh, if you're tire pressure and your cars are getting low, anything that could be dangerous, we have an electronic reminder. And this is just another form of that. So that's uh, I, I was particularly happy with that uh, podcast. It was very uh, informative. Jeanette started out her journey uh, on this, on the, on this uh, work just voluntarily to stop hot car deaths because she herself was kidnapped and put in the trunk of her own car. Uh, by uh, robbers they they stuffed her and her husband in the trunk of her own car and they escaped by digging out and getting the cable and opening up the trunk and then they got the idea of uh, of uh, putting in a button or a lever inside your trunk in case you get stuck in there so you can hit that lever and now every car in America has that lever because of an act she she took all the way to Congress it was really, she's just, you know, she wasn't a behavior analyst. She's just someone that looked all this up after her own experience, and that led her to find out about the hot car deaths. So that, I thought that was a good episode that we had just recently. Other areas of interest are juvenile justice, uh, domestic violence, uh, contingency management programs, token economies for rehabilitation, safety crime, OBM for the police, competency to stand trial, you heard some of it. So there is two main areas for the podcast. I think it's a total of nine different sites carry the podcast. You can Nowadays, you can look it up uh, without too much difficulty. And then it's our Facebook page. And, and we're working on the website for our SIG, but uh, the Facebook page has a lot of the files and things of, uh, and then connections. And people are, are have become very active on there lately. And obligatory uh, set of uh, references there. So... Um, yeah, uh, you know, pursue the area if you're interested, even if it's not, you know, your cup of tea or not. You, you, forensics and uh, and this kind of work in society intersects with so many different areas, so you may want to become familiar with it, or if you have some interest, you can get with us. We're always interested in uh, new areas and uh, work that could be done that could be beneficial. And there's my contact information. And uh, there's a few more chats up there. And uh, if there's any more words you need to share for the CEs, I guess maybe that was the last one. And that's my last slide. And uh, if you have any questions, I'll take them now if we have the time. Yeah, if anyone does need to go, um, you know, feel free to jump off. I did put the um, survey link in the, in the chat box. So make sure to do that so you can get your CE. I know some people jumped off early, so we will make sure to get that emailed out to anyone that's registered. But there were a couple questions in the chat. If you have a, a minute, I don't know um, if those individuals have stayed on, but um, one of the questions was, does the competency to stand trial take into account the level of competency the individual had before the trial or when the crime was committed? Yeah, uh, good question. And it's, uh, it's a common question because there's some confusion with insanity uh, what's called, uh, it depends on what your state on what it's called, but it's often not guilty by reason of insanity. That is your mental state at the time of the crime. Competency would be your mental state right now. If the trial was held right here and now, uh, would you be competent enough to defend yourself? 
and whether you were sane at the time of the crime is a different issue. So it's it it has a temporal distinction. Competency is how you are functioning right here and now. Perfect. Thank you. Oh, go ahead, Emily. I was just gonna say it's so interesting. It's like a whole new world. And there was um, two more questions, I think, and then we can wrap it up and be respectful of everyone's time if um, we can just do these ones super quickly. Any thought of how that may have an ethic, have ethical rep repercussions in that a person may still lack insight but be found competent due to developing verbal fluency? Well, you know, I brought that up because that issue was brought up to my advisor, and uh, her response was, well, don't we get that same uh, kind of criticism with autism or other kinds of language development. In other words, you've just, uh, people in AB are being criticized a lot now of this idea as well. You're just training them to be robots or you're just training them to say certain words. Do they really understand it? And that criticism of um, uh, that we're just going over the courtroom terms, it sounds very similar to that. Uh, it has to do with uh, our goal is to build fluency so they can connect one term to another in a way that is effective for them. Now, if we are successful in helping them learn courtroom terms and concepts, it isn't going to be that simple that they'll be found competent because they have to have a psychiatric review. Uh, and I'm hoping that the increase in fluency will assist that process. So I, I don't really have a lot of concern that uh, they will be put into a position they can't handle because there's so many levels of, of review and we are just kind of an assistant to all of that. Perfect. And then the last question, do you need a criminal justice background to work in this field or can you have only an ABA or BCBA background? Uh, I, I would not say you have to have a criminal justice uh, background. You... Um, become informed about uh, some of these different areas. I think it is, a, a, I think you can be a behavior analyst, but as we know in behavior uh, analysis, it does not exist in simply a vacuum. So I hope that the SIG or other things you could learn um, could help you. It's like every other area of ABA, you have to, uh, it has to be within your scope of practice. So if you, uh, it's not a particular degree, but you have to know the people and the environment you're working with. And so just, uh, you know, uh, find the training that you need so that you can work in that environment uh, successfully. That's great. Yeah. Well, okay. thank you, Tim, so much for speaking to us. Again, apologies for our technical difficulties at the beginning. It's quite all right. Um, uh, Caleb was able to record, so we can definitely get that to you once we end. Um, but yeah, we really appreciate you. Like, I think this is a new topic for a lot of us. Um, so your content was like on point for exactly like where us beginners needed to be. <laughs> Very much appreciate you inviting me to, to your organization. And, and uh, we always enjoy things like this. So I appreciate it. You, are, you have been the highlight of the year. This was our biggest turnout. Well, I that helps me to hear that just greatly. So I appreciate it all the more. <laughs> Good. Good. Um, could I ask you just to share your intro slide one more time and we can snag a quick photo? Uh, what am I sharing? I'm sorry. Just like maybe your intro slide. Oh, okay. 
Uh, let's Sorry. go ahead and uh, let me get to it. Great remembering, Emily. Wow. Our our excellent um, social media woman is always wanting a great photo. <laughs> I'm so proud of you doing this. <laughs> is that is that what we're looking for? Yes. Okay. okay. I'm gonna take a quick screenshot. Okay. Um, if everyone wants to smile. Okay, I got it. All right. <laughs> Thank you. I was I was still silly requesting that. <laughs> no, no. Quite understandable. But, we will let you go because it is much later for you. Um, but thank you so much for being here. Um, we appreciate your time and knowledge. Okay. You very much right. uh, appreciate it myself and have me back anytime. So have, have a great weekend, everyone. You too. Thank you, Bye. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. This has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.